Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. How was your week, Dave? It was great. Yeah, finished on a high note. Uh, we're back in Texas for the Labor Day weekend, so I came and saw uh, some devastation that was done from a lot of rain to my yard, but it's good to, to be back here and uh, just kind of enjoying the open space and all that. Uh, how about you? Now back to school, I see. Yeah, yeah. My first class is actually on Tuesday, but we've opened things up. We had a nice convocation Wednesday night, so it's, it's exciting to really get into things and see students back. I've had a number of meetings through Google Meet. Um, nothing in person yet, but we're working toward that. So there's definitely momentum building in the right direction. Great. So last two weeks, we've reviewed the Democratic and Republican National Conventions and really talked a lot about the presidential horse race. We're going to take a break from that this week and take a deeper look at democracy in America today using the book that inspired the podcast name, Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville, and trying to think about the projections that he made for the future of American democracy and how well those correspond with the experiences that we have today, and thinking about just how much we can learn from the insights he had at a very early stage of American democracy into our own political circumstances. Before we get to that, just want to thank all of you who added new reviews to Apple Podcasts. We had an appeal for that last time, and a number of you followed through on that, so that's a big help. Thanks very much. Keep it up if you haven't added a review. Those things help others find the podcast. If you're enjoying it, we'd be glad to have you share it with others. This is not supposed to be a secret. Um, I know it's fun to be part of a private club, but we'd like the club to grow a little bit, so we'd be glad to have you share it with others. Uh, you can also keep up with us on Instagram at Democracy in America Today. We kind of keep the conversation going there as new headlines connect to episodes that we've already recorded. As we get going here, I want to begin by quoting the final paragraph of the introduction to volume one of Democracy in America. So 1835, the Tocqueville completing the first volume, introduction, he concludes, and I'm using the, the Mansfield and Winthrop translation here. I end by pointing out myself what a great number of readers will consider the capital defect in the work. This book is not precisely in anyone's camp. In writing it, I did not mean either to serve or to contest any party. I undertook to see not differently, but further than the parties. And while they are occupied with the next day, I wanted to ponder the future. So this is something of an inspiration for the podcast that we're doing here. Right? We want to pivot from the headlines and then see further than the headlines. And in some ways, that means going back to see the intellectual sources of ideas, perhaps sources that we've forgotten about and their influence on present things. So we want to use the Tocqueville, again, as a way to see further, to see further into the political context in which we live. It's so easy to get caught up in the headlines, whatever the latest Twitter outrage is, whatever the latest concern is, who said this, who said that, and all the more so during a presidential campaign. Can we get some perspective? Uh, de Tocqueville gives us the opportunity to do that. So what we're going to do is talk through some things that de Tocqueville got right and, and really where his prophetic voice comes through most clearly. And then at the end, we'll talk about some things maybe he didn't 
get exactly right and use that as a broader opportunity to comment on some of the general trends of politics and political culture in our day. So Dave, I'm going to let you go first. Uh, what's one important thing that the Tocqueville got right? Well, I think the one important thing that I want to reference from his work is, is really drawn from, from something more important that he got right. And, and that was, what is the proper relationship between philosophy and thought and history? It's so easy uh, to become overly philosophic uh, or uh, kind of drowned in your thought that, that you lose sight of the particulars in your abstractions. Or on the other hand, that you're so uh, drowned in, in the particulars of this world uh, that you lose sight of a philosophic pattern that might allow you to see further than the parties. So I, I think that what, what Tocqueville has going for him uh, is he is a thinker uh, who is uh, very much um, interested in the movement, the particular movement uh, of the world. And uh, this, of course, you see in his grand prediction that the world is growing more and more democratic uh, and that uh, the influence that democracy will have upon the world will not simply be a political influence, but will be uh, an influence over all aspects of, of human existence. So my guess when, when the listener hears this, what did he get right uh, question, a lot of people are going to turn to the end of the work where he defines this uh, new type of democratic despotism that he says will be uh, more extensive and milder than any type of despotism uh, up until that point in world history, and that would degrade men without tormenting them. Uh, because I think uh, a lot of us who kind of take a look at the picture of American democracy in the 21st century today, uh, I think find uh, some problematic outcomes of, of democracy's uh, influence. But instead of, I think, just working on that point uh, and going through uh, his discussion about how we lose sight of our powerlessness and why we're uh, uh, powerless in that last chapter, I want to turn to to really kind of what I think he's trying to do in his second volume of his work, which is describe why we might be tending in the direction of, of democratic despotism. One of the interesting things, if you, if you take a look, if you have uh, uh, Tocqueville's um, a translation of Tocqueville's Democracy in America in front of you uh, for this show, this would be helpful. But when you look at volume two of the work, something uh, important uh, comes to you, and that is the following. The first three parts of the second volume of Democracy in America deal with democracy's influence upon different parts of the human soul. Uh, so he starts out talking about the influence of democracy on the intellect in volume two, part one. Uh, then the influence of uh, democracy on our passions or sentiments uh, in, in part two. And then thirdly, the influence of, of democracy on our will or our spiritedness. So he, he kind of hits all three parts, tripartite soul and democracy's influence upon it before then turning to the de despotism that uh, we have to fear. But what I found to be the, the most interesting of all of those three parts of democracy's influence upon our soul is the influence that democracy has upon our passions, has upon our sentiments, and in particular, the influence it has upon that which we love. And there's a section in volume two, part two, chapter one, titled, Why Democratic Peoples 
show a more ardent and more enduring love for equality than for liberty. And I would say, Matt, that I think this is what Tocqueville gets most right, that in a democratic age, that we living under that democratic banner will have a greater love for equality, a more ardent love for equality than we will have for liberty. And why is this the case? Why is it that we would come to love equality more than liberty? So here I want to read to you. I have a different translation, Matt. Um, I, wanted, I want to read to you uh, from the uh, Liberty Fund translation where Tocqueville says the following about equality and liberty. He says, you can imagine an extreme point where liberty and equality meet and merge. Suppose that all citizens participate in the government and that each one has an equal right to take part in it. Since no one then differs from his fellows, no one will be able to exercise a tyrannical power. Men will be perfectly free because they will all be entirely equal, and they will all be perfectly equal because they will be entirely free. Democratic peoples tend toward this ideal. So from that paragraph, what I take from Tocqueville is that he can imagine a point in the future, looking further than the parties, where you might get the perfect intersection between equality and liberty, and that 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 would be something that would help human beings flourish. The problem, however, is as, as we move into the modern world, our love of equality grows in an inverse way to our love of liberty. And why does that happen? Why do we come to love equality more than liberty? So here in this chapter, he gives some reasons for this. So here's one. One of the reasons why men love equality more than liberty, why they're more attached to it than liberty, is because they believe that equality will last forever. Well, I think that that, that's definitely the case. And I, I think that then why then would we be more attached to equality? Is that simply a political decision that we make? It's a safer decision uh, to be an embracer of equality and liberty? Is that, uh, that, is that why we make that choice? Well, I think it's really two different ways of trying to establish one's own dignity. And so there's a certain person who loves liberty as an opportunity to pursue excellence, to engage a difficult world and to demonstrate virtue, to triumph over obstacles. But that's a difficult path. And it's a path that's not guaranteed to succeed. But on the other hand, there's another kind of dignity that comes from being the equal of somebody. And say, well, you're no better than I am. A kind of dignity that's easier to grasp, more accessible, doesn't ask as much of you. And so I think it's possible that in democratic society, which obviously emphasizes equality anyway, as the root principle of the political order, that we find that most people are attracted to that easier pathway to dignity than the more difficult pathway which, which liberty offers. Yeah, and he'll say that later in the same chapter. He, he, he writes, the good things that liberty brings show themselves only over time, and it is always easy to fail to recognize the cause that gives them birth whereas the advantages of equality make themselves felt immediately, and every day you see them flow from their source. A political liberty from time to time gives sublime pleasures to a certain number of citizens. Equality provides a multitude of small enjoyments to each man every day. 
the charms of equality are felt at every moment, and they are within the reach of all. So here, uh, it seems to me that what Tocqueville is saying, one reason why we love equality more than liberty, or we have a more ardent and enduring love for it, is it's more accessible to us uh, than is liberty. Which brings me to my next point, which I think is also something that came up in, in your response. Tocqueville writes that men cannot enjoy political liberty without purchasing it at the cost of some sacrifices. And they never secure it except by a great deal of effort. What do you think about that idea or thought in comparing equality and liberty? What Tocqueville is telling us there, right, is that liberty is, is difficult. It, it requires sacrifice. It requires work. Agreed? True. And I think maybe in a different sense, equality does as well. Certainly, we think about the, the course of American history. And I think if you would ask somebody, well, has it been easy to attain equality under the law? Say, so, well, no, it hasn't been. Right? We've had a civil war. We've had a civil rights movement. We can think of many obvious instances where equality was, was hard fought. So I think there's this different kind of difficulty in terms of politically realizing the equality perhaps promised under the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution. Which brings me to the last part of this chapter that I, uh, I want to reference here in, in this discussion as to why I have a more ardent love for equality. He talks near the end of this chapter about uh, moments where he says an old social hierarchy, uh, which threatened for a long time, is finally destroyed uh, after a final internal struggle, and when those barriers that separated citizens are at last overturned. At that point, he argues, men then rush toward equality as toward a conquest, and they cling to it as a precious good that someone wants to take away from them. The passion for equality penetrates the human heart from all directions. It spreads and fills it entirely. So certainly if you were going to talk about the end of the 20th century, the 21st century American experience, we have seen kind of an old social hierarchy, at least within uh, democratic America, uh, pass away. And we have seen uh, in parts uh, of our society this kind of renewed love for an egalitarian norm and embrace and so on that almost is a, is a matter of delirium. And as he, as he points out in this chapter, and I think that uh, with that kind of revolution toward equality in mind, you could see how it'd be very difficult you know, for lovers of liberty to, um, to make the case for liberty in, in that type of environment. And, um, and hence, uh, we move, if Tocqueville's correct, we move closer and closer uh, towards a world where equality and liberty are not viewed as um, intersecting aspirations, uh, but as uh, opposites, uh, which is, I think, a very dangerous thing for American society. Right. If you think about the trajectory of American politics and its understanding of equality, you get in the early stages of American political life, equality is a rule of justice, a rule of justice that is obviously not achieved, but it's a standard against which measures are judged. But what happens as you move along, especially in the progressive era and beyond, equality becomes a goal. And the kind of equality that de Tocqueville is talking about is not the same equality as we see in the Declaration of Independence, or it's that and more. The equality that he's talking about, the equality that people have this ardent and enduring love for, is an equality that brings about 
transformed family life, transformed work life, that brings about changes toward equality, um, not just a matter of treating people with equal dignity or respect, but actually equalizing things over the course of time. And that obviously, as it goes along, and as you get more deeply committed to that, and if policy is more consistent with that, that becomes a real challenge to maintaining liberty. Yeah, so to just tie this back as I close what I thought that he got right to the chapter, the type of despotism that we have to fear, it's from this vantage point of this relationship between equality and liberty that I think we better understand his fear of an innumerable crowd of similar and equal men who spin around restlessly in order to gain small and vulgar pleasures with which they fill their souls. And that same group of men being led by an immense and tutelary power that alone takes charge of assuring their enjoyment and of looking after their fate. So it seems the opposite of the rightful intersection of liberty and equality, liberty rightly understood and equality rightly understood would be a despotism in which equal men spin restlessly their business tended to for them by an immense tutelary power. Yeah, I always describe that as a really powerful passage as de Tocqueville's prequel to Brave New World. That's in essence what he's doing is he's describing, if you've read that novel, this kind of dystopia where the government isn't mean to you. It's not 1984 where somebody's stomping on you. No, they want you to enjoy yourself, get all the pleasures you can, the most most base pleasures, uh, the better. The more base the pleasure, the, the better. As de Tocqueville says, it's happy you're happy so long as you're happy on the terms that it defines. And it, it, it gives you a picture of the happy life that you need to achieve. Great. So how about you, Matt? What do you think that Tocqueville got right? Well, I was going to maybe pivoting from that, think about one of the political consequences that followed from that love of equality and later on in volume two, uh, part four, before he gets to democratic despotisms, he's sort of setting that up. He first argues that democracy tends toward the concentration of power in a single national government. And I want to just, before we get into this, recognize this is a surprising claim by him in at least two different ways. The Europeans who are reading this are thinking democracy is about anarchy. They went through the French Revolution. What came out of that in the short term was anarchy. Maybe you say, well, the long term was definitely concentrated centralized power. But the, the historic critique of democracy is democracy tends toward anarchy. You, you break down social orders. You break down political order, religious order, all the hierarchies that have been well-established, and we've got absolute chaos. And so Tuchel says, yeah, there, there's some of that at the beginning of a revolution. That's not where it ends up. The second reason this is a surprising claim is that this is nothing like the America he was observing when he showed up in 1830, 1831. He spent nine months in the United States traveling mostly in the North, some in the South. This is Jacksonian America, literally Jacksonian America, Andrew Jackson's first term. The first term during which he alone among all American presidents paid off the national debt. He didn't just balance the budget. He paid off the debt. The government was small and getting smaller. He vetoed the bill to reestablish the National Bank. He vetoed bills that would have spent money on new roads and bridges and canals. This was a committed decentralizer in Andrew Jackson. And yet, having visited there for nine months, 
with all the history that suggests that democracy tends toward anarchy, to Tocqueville says, no, it actually tends toward the concentration of power. And the argument he makes is an argument from equality. If people love equality, then they chafe at any distinctions in the law that separate one group from another. And what would seem like the most arbitrary distinction of all would be a distinction between the rules I live under in New York and the rules you live under in Texas or California. We happen to live a quarter mile from the New Jersey border. And so, in fact, our computer thinks we're in New Jersey. My IP address always identifies me as being in New Jersey. So one of the strange applications of this is under New Jersey law right now, you can be involved in sports gambling, right? So somebody who lives in my town can walk a quarter of a mile, be in New Jersey and, and do sports gambling. Now, again, if my I wouldn't do that, if I were you, Matt, I just, your predictions have not been that good <laughs> yeah, over the last I've couple months. Well. So just no. hold back, hold back that urge to yeah. cross the state there, line. And there are many reasons why I won't do that. Um, including my inability to make good predictions. But, but this is an odd thing, right? We've got two adjoining states. People that live literally a stone's throw from where I live can do something that I can't do. So why should that be? And so democracies, democratic societies want uniformity. And the only way you get uniformity, of course, is by one set of rules that emanate from some centralized government. And so there's this natural tendency in that direction. He's seen this philosophically, long before he can see it historically. Yeah, that's a great way of expressing this. Uh, the French political philosopher Pierre Manent says that eventually the love of equality becomes the love of resemblance. We want everything to resemble everything else. And I think you're definitely seeing this in the point that you're making. Yeah, and he talks further about some of the dynamics that, that push this along. So one of the points that really I think is right on and again, something that he would not have seen very much of in his day, but you can certainly see a lot of in our day, is the way that we have this kind of hypocrisy among the lovers of small government. So we know there's people that love large government, but we also think, well, yeah, we've always kind of historically had a small government party and a large government party, or a, a local government party and a national government party. It goes all the way back to Jefferson versus Hamilton, and then you've got Democrats versus Whigs and Republicans versus Democrats and various versions of that. So it seems like we've always had this debate. And so wouldn't you say, well, it's not really a democratic thing. It's just some people in democracies want centralization and, and some don't. But actually, there's an interesting dynamic. I think you can investigate this in terms of your own political interests and concerns. He points out that even those that like small government often want the government to promote something related to their interests. So I'm, I'm against government support for any kind of industry, except that the industry I'm involved in, it's amazing. We're doing all these great things. If we can just get some government loans to help us out, the public is going to benefit, the jobs we're going to create, it's crazy. Give us some tax breaks, give us a little bit of startup money, give us some great loan deals. Let's not even talk about federal financial aid for colleges and universities. Don't want to go there, right, as, as two college professors. So there's certain things that we say, well, yeah, we believe in small, local, limited government, but obviously that doesn't include these kinds of programs that just happen to benefit me. And he talks about this dynamic. And what happens is naturally the government, which is glad to have more power, is very eager to say, absolutely, we'll, we'll help you with what you want. 
and also the person next to you and the one next to you, right? So the principle of equality doesn't actually prevent the centralization of power, but it drives that because once I've given you your special treatment, why shouldn't I give the next person theirs? They can make a, an appeal to equality that says it's not fair that your industry gets this carve out tax break and mine doesn't. So let's give everybody a tax break and let's make sure we're, we're funding all kinds of industries to get people the seed money they need to generate the new jobs or the, the whiz bang technology or whatever, whatever it might be. There's that kind of bottom up dynamic. And then he talks about how the ruling class figures out how to play the game. And they know the language of democracy. They, they know the language of equality. Line that I think is, is really powerful here. He says, this is in uh, volume two, part four, chapter three. The government is pardoned for its faults for the sake of its tastes. If you were to gonna take one, it's not even a full sentence, but, but one clause from the Tocqueville and say, this is the banner of our politics today. You get pardoned for your faults if you have the right tastes. And so if you use the language of equality and you are persuasive and compelling in the way that you do that, you don't actually have to be all that competent at what you're doing as a political leader. Your, your, your proposals don't have to be very good ones. You don't have to be that wise in the course you're plotting for the country. But if your heart's in the right place, you will be popular. And over the course of time, you will naturally accrue powers put their confidence in you as somebody who they know is on their side and is convinced is a friend of equality. It's funny, Matt, when you mention all this, I, I think back to uh, Madison's discussion of faction and, and Federalist 10 and, and his, um, his fear about faction, right, in a, in a Republican society. And his remedy, right, was, which was to, to do what? Well, having representative government would help. Uh, extending the orbit uh, of the republic would help uh, and hence uh, would keep uh, individual factions, whether minorities or majorities, uh, from acting uh, tyrannical uh, against uh, uh, those who, who they were against. And, and here, I think if you're describing de Tocqueville correctly, uh, what happens instead as we move forward in American political history is we see uh, the growing extension of the American administrative state because special interests have been able to do what? They've, they've been able to acquire uh, a certain stranglehold over American politics where the pie continues to grow. So instead of interests uh, fighting with other interests, interests overall have grown. Uh, the American government has grown with it uh, and factions have been done away with not so much by controlling their effects, but by allowing their effects to continue to grow in terms of our national budget, et cetera, which is now what, 27 trillion, if that's correct? I think uh, it's 98 trillion this year, but yeah. <laughs> but We're spending all the money, <laughs> all, all the money in the world this year. Yeah, but, I, but as you said rightly, I think a, a governing or ruling class that is willing to go along uh, with, this, uh, with this growth. Yeah. yeah, and that's right. And, and so you end up with uh, a dynamic where both bottom up and top down, there's a cooperative effort towards centralizing power and increasing the authority of the national government. And then, you know, there's still political battle, but the battle is over who controls the levers of that power rather than how much power there should be. You still have lip service to smaller government, larger government. But when you look at what's actually being debated, and we've written about this in the past, you know, it's usually like the last 5% of the budget, 
right? We're, we're talking about 3.2 versus $3.3 trillion. That's not a lot that's actually on the table when you look at the debate. The real debate is who gets to decide who gets that money? Who gets to control the outflow of that money? Who's, whose friends are going to benefit from that money and whose enemies will be punished by perhaps a lack of getting the money that they otherwise would have expected. That, that's where the real action is, not over the size of government so much as over who controls the authority that the government has actually been able to accumulate. All right, let's get to our second point. So we'll ping pong back to you, Dave. Well, you've been mentioning the kind of outgrowth of, uh, of government, um, its centralization, et cetera. But there's another aspect, I think, of our lives that, that he gets right. And, and that is, uh, he'll call it the, the literary industry, but we may call it the media industry. And, and what he says there is that um, democracy not only makes the taste for letters penetrate the industrial classes, it introduces the industrial spirit into literature. So if I had to update that and translate it into 20th and 21st century language and institutions, I'd say democracy not only makes the taste for media uh, penetrate the industrial classes, it introduces the industrial spirit into media or mass media. And I think that he predicts here the influence that mass media, and you can kind of go through uh, its its growth and transformation over the 20th and 21st century from radio to Disney to Hollywood to television to now the internet, Facebook, et cetera. This is a massive economic industry, and it really acts as kind of the primary projector of universal secular norms or notions of what our life should be and and actually produces for many Americans kind of that that picture of resemblance that we're all drawn to. And um, it, it kind of universalizes our souls. And I think that that's problematic if it creates within us an equality uh, that is um, suffocating uh, rather than liberating. With this kind of dumbing down perhaps of the standards, right, of these of these media. So the industrial spirit injected into literature means now I'm writing for a mass audience. I got to make sure I write what sells. I got to make sure that I do things that are consistent with the prevailing norms. Think about the, the pressure to conform on social media, for example, right? I've got to make sure that I, I've got my profile just so to make sure that I'm not falling foul of, of the social pressures that are always surrounding me. And if I want to get clicks, there's a certain formula for doing that. Once the industrial spirit enters into literature, once, once we've got to make money doing this and that becomes the central purpose, there's democratic norms that you've got to follow. Yeah, everything has to be easily consumed. Uh, everything has to be disposable because the new product has to enter uh, a week, two weeks later that then becomes the next thing uh, that is purchased or bought. It's kind of like this show disposable, consumable discussions about texts that are 200 years old, correct? <laughs> There's always another episode coming out next week. And don't forget, don't forget to like us <laughs> or follow us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, we got to get those clicks. Absolutely. All right. So my, my second offering here, and it's really capturing the title of the chapter. This is volume two, part one, chapter eight, how equality suggests to the Americans the idea of the indefinite perfectibility of man. And he talks about how if people are equal, then the horizons seem to recede. And in aristocracy, 
everyone's slotted into their spot. You know, very strict hierarchy. And, you know, if you watch a movie based on a Jane Austen novel or something, you know, you see all the social forms play out and all that goes away. And so now all things are possible, it seems. Any individual can rise and rise indefinitely. And so he argues that the spirit of democracy and then intersect that with that, the rise of the capitalist economy, industrialization, as economic enterprise begins to bring new technologies on the scene, it's rapid transformation of society. All of a sudden, people are seeing material conditions improving uh, at, a, at a tremendous rate. And drawing the conclusion from that, that if we're getting better technologically, surely we're getting better morally. We have more knowledge of the world in a scientific sense. Surely our souls must be improving side by side. Surely we're, we're learning new things about uh, the, the just and the good. And we're, we're being more conformed to those principles over the course of time. And as you move beyond the period in which de Tocqueville is writing into the late 19th century, early 20th century, as industrialization becomes even more the order of the day and technological improvement accelerates even more rapidly, not to mention in our own day, right, 100 plus years later, and you have happening simultaneous with that, the rejection by the intellectual class and then sort of trickling down from there into the general population, the rejection of the Christian doctrine of original sin. So now maybe we're actually naturally good people inject a little Darwinian theory applied in social contexts where we've got to improve over time because of Darwinistic evolution. All these things happening at once put the accelerator down on this idea of perfectibility. And so we have a 20th century, now a 21st century, dominated by utopian visions of politics, the expectation that government can, should, must deliver, and, and deliver not just some incremental improvement in my life, but actually solve the big problems that human beings have been facing for millennia. Which brings me, Matt, to, uh, I think we each have one thing that we thought that he may have gotten wrong. And, and here we do so, I think, with great respect. And, and perhaps we're misreading him or, or uh, taking him out of context. But when I, when I think about what he gets wrong, uh, it has to do with what you're just talking about with regard to human perfectibility. And if I'm understanding correctly, the, the lowering of the ceiling for human expectations because we kind of take the transcendent out of the picture and the raising of the floor because of uh, the betterment that occurs in terms of material and economic uh, conditions. So when, when Tocqueville writes about the sources of poetry among democratic nations, and here I once again would say the sources of poetry, let's, let's read poetry uh, more broadly, poesis, creation, culture creation. What are the sources of culture creation among democratic nations? Tocqueville writes, it must first be recognized that the taste for the ideal and the pleasure that is taken in seeing its portrayal are never as intense and as widespread among a democratic people as within an aristocracy. So Democrats don't have as intense and widespread a love for ideals as do their aristocratic counterparts. He says, why? Well, because equality not only diverts men from portraying the ideal, it decreases the number of subjects to portray. And I actually think the reverse has been true in our democratic age. 
that equality actually drives men to portraying an ideal. It's just kind of a lower ideal than the one that Tocqueville may have been referencing in an aristocratic age. Uh, and it also, I think, increases the number of subjects to portray because there are that many more people who can aspire uh, toward that ideal. So if you take a look at culture creation, um, media, uh, movies, film, literature, and so on, within that um, sphere of things, I think romantic ideals dominate. Uh, and it's only with the occasional exception uh, where you have a maker of American culture, literary or otherwise, uh, who, who don't uh, promote a progressive secular ideal. All to say, uh, there are many more uh, John Steinbecks in 20th and 21st century American culture making than there are Mark Twain's. Uh, many more Hemingway's uh, than there are Hawthorne's. And there's a lot more buy-in from the creators of culture in the direction to which the progressive ideal is pointing us. And uh, I think that helps to explain kind of the movement towards the universality that uh, Tocqueville would find dangerous and believes contributes to democratic despotism. Now that you could tie that back into the previous point that you were making, as you think about what sells in democratic society, right? This romantic optimism that's connected as well to the belief in human perfectibility, these are all intertwined points that, that lead to a certain kind of literature, a broader culture. And you know, I think, look, again, as you say, we're, we're, we're critiquing to Tocqueville in, in, in the most modest way possible, recognizing that on the biggest questions concerning the future of the West and the emergence of democracy as the dominant regime, he got it right and he saw far. And as he describes the nature of equality and what the love of equality does to a community, again, he saw, we could have multiplied many more instances of places where his projections were realized in our day. And, and often, much more in our day, again, than in his, where, where he had really to project, where he maybe saw things in kernel form in 19th century America that only over the course of the last 175 years have actually reached their full flowering as democracy has become more and more embedded in American political culture. But the one thing that I would, I would point out, and in some ways it's not so much a prophecy as it's a, it's a word of advice that he gave. He talks early on in volume two about the importance of the church as a restraint on democracy. And, and on that point, I think he's absolutely right. The church, religion, Christianity in particular is strong where democracy is weak. There's a, there's a role for the church to complement democracy in, in lifting the eyes of people to things beyond the material, in showing them a standard of truth that's not tied to the majority. So there's really important things the church can do in a democratic society. And he advises the church to, to guard its position by limiting the scope of its work. In essence, focus on the absolutely essential articles of faith and conform the democracy wherever you can. Uh, don't challenge democracy where it's not absolutely required by the central articles of faith. And, and there's a certain prudence, obviously, embedded in that advice. But I think it's fair to say that what's happened over the 175 years since so the church has simply been overwhelmed by democracy. That 
that the church, this is not obviously universally true, but, but the American church is a thoroughly democratized church, weakened by democracy in certain important ways, and that it's made this accommodation to democracy to such a degree that it's very difficult for it to be the prophetic voice that Tocqueville is wanting it to be. That the over-accommodation, and maybe they misapplied to Tocqueville rather than the Tocqueville's advice being bad, but the accommodation of democracy by the church has led to, on the right, the idolizing of political power. Think about the Jerry Falwell Jr. fallout over the last few weeks or any number of other headlines. It's just, just wait a few more weeks and there'll be some other evangelical leader uh, who falls flat on his face because he's wedded himself to political power and, and given up the integrity of his witness, forgotten the gospel and, and idolized political power. Or on the left, where you just get an entirely new gospel. We're just going to forget about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we're going to have a gospel of social action, a gospel of political redemption. So in either direction, politically left or right, whichever way you turn, you see the influence of this centralizing egalitarian push of democracy on the church. And, and you realize here we are so many further steps down the path that de Tocqueville has described, how desperately we need the church that he's calling for but that perhaps his prescriptions didn't allow for the continuity of. Yeah, I mean, I whenever I teach Tocqueville, I, I reference over and over again Tocqueville's call for us to have this vertical orientation, is the way that I put it, where we we look um, we look high, uh, we look toward greatness, uh, we look towards biblical truth, uh, we look towards the transcendent. And, and we do so, and, and that provides for us a standard that could get lost in the throes of democracy uh, as, as we become more and more ruled by equality and the multitude. There has to be um, a standard that challenges uh, equality to make equality the best that it can be. And, and that, I think you're rightly saying, could be a church that was true uh, to the gospel. Uh, it could be people within that church. Uh, that uh, are not after uh, self-interest or political power per se, uh, but after the common good. And it's going to be those forces that that draw us vertically towards the common good that will prevent the movement towards equality from being a movement towards a despotism rather than a movement towards human liberty and flourishing. All right. Well, we're going to open the grade book now as we do it each week. Uh, this week, we're going to pivot from politics. And since Labor Day is normally the unofficial end of summer. Uh, we're going to grade some Labor Day celebration options. So you get this early day off, beginning of September. If you're just getting started on school, a little bit of a break, catch your breath in these early days. So give you a few things that are maybe common Labor Day activities or things that might be especially attractive in our COVID-19 world. Number one, the classic backyard grill. You're in Texas. I'm imagining you doing a backyard grill. Is that on the agenda for the Corbin family? It is, yeah, with, uh, with our neighbors. So uh, it's a must, right? Uh, Monday, uh, 3.30 p.m. I'll be uh, there. Yeah, great. Uh, everyone's welcome. If you're in Texas, uh, we're, we're right in Canyon Lake. Uh, burgers, dogs, a um, lot of food, 
just great, great company. We, we've been doing that uh, for, for years. I remember having King's professors up at our house in New Hampshire. Not that weekend, but close to it. And that's just a great, great A. That's an easy one. That's an A plus. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a great way to enjoy those last days of summer. Also, tends to be a little bit cooler. So it's nice. You're not just baking out there as you're, as you're grilling, be able to enjoy being outside for that stretch of time. We got the charcoal grill. So it's a multi-hour production to uh, cook everything, but you enjoy that on a nice early September day. I'll give that an A as well. All right. Number two option, going to a ball game. Now I know what you're going to say. Wait a second. That's so 2019. You can't go to ball games. Au contraire. I was looking just last night and I found for just $315, you can get a seat Monday to the best game on the schedule, St. Louis Cardinals at Chicago Cubs, classic National League rivalry, sitting on a rooftop across the street from Wrigley Field. I've been to Wrigley Field. You can see those people sitting up there on the roof. They can see the game. I don't know if they can see everything in the outfield, but they can see the game. Just $315 and sign waiver. You got to sign a waiver if you want to go up there. You can watch St. Louis at Chicago. What do you think, Dave? For $315, I'm going to give that one a C. I think the last time, I, I think my father-in-law Dick bought us tickets to a Labor Day game, Red Sox, Blue Jays. It wasn't $315, but Fenway Park is about $100 a pop for a good seat. Expensive, and, uh, yeah. It was expensive, never mind the $15 hot dog. Uh, <laughs> You know, and the post beer. that might be blocking your view. <laughs> exactly. $20 beer. It's, you know, uh, out, out of reach for many, uh, including including us. So uh, I'll, I'll give that a C. Uh, uh, but I, I think you know, the, the idea of going to see a game to me is an, is an A. I'd like to see more people doing things uh, like that. It just makes life more normal. Yeah. And, and Wrigley Field, if you've never been there, you got to go there. It's It's got to be a bucket list type of item. My dad and I went there. We were driving cross country in my sister's pink geo tracker. She was, she was hiking after graduating from college from Mexico to Canada. And so we drove the car. So in order to bump up the testosterone of the experience, we stopped at major league parks every day, uh, but one. So we went to six games in seven days, including an afternoon game, Phillies and Cubs. Great experience. We were really small crowd. So we were right behind on plate, uh, maybe 20 rows back, something like that. An incredible view. Great day. Um, so I'm going to need to check in to make sure that GeoTracker wasn't a gift, though. Gifted down <laughs> by an, an older brother. So, No, that was, that was her gift for getting a scholarship to college. So okay. she, she earned it. Um, okay. right. she, she beat me in high school GPA. She earned a scholarship to college. And, and so she got, she got a car. Okay. So, and your yeah. reward was to get to drive it. So, all right. Yeah. Yeah. We got to drive it all the way across country. But. Good. But it was it was worth it because we we saw a lot of great ballparks, had a great time. All right, I'm sentimental reasons. I'm going to give that a, a B. But you're right, 315 bucks is a, is a lot to pay for for a rooftop t- ticket across the street from Wrigley Field. Third option, go to a movie. I know what you're saying. You live in New York and California. I can't go to movies. Well, that's true. But most of the country, you actually can. Last week's number one movie, I won't I won't make you guess it, Dave. Uh, the New Mutants was open in 2,400 theaters. So, you know, normally it's like 4,000 when you get those like, you know, wide open. So 2,400 theaters, that's pretty good. Now, you know, 25% capacity or something like that. They didn't make a ton of money. But if you're thinking about this, don't forget the, the, there's the new Bill and Ted movie 
Uh, we've been waiting for that for 30 years. I remember you were super into Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure in high school, if I remember correctly. So great. That's right. I remember, remember it well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really what got me interested in American history. You know, the portrayal of Lincoln there. That's like kind of, I can kind of trace my life's path from the first time I saw Bill and Ted when I was 16 years old. And then also, you know, if you're more into the kind of artsy film scene, you've got Christopher Nolan's new movie, Tenet. Uh, if you want to understand it, our, our good friend Alyssa Wilkinson's got a review and explainer piece on top of the review at Vox. So sounds like you may still understand it even after you read all that, but it gives you a chance at least to make something of your, your two and a half hours or whatever it's going to be with Christopher Nolan. Got some options there. Uh, you're in Texas. You could go to a movie. What do you think? Nothing against Alyssa, but I'm going to give this one probably a C as well. Maybe, maybe C minus. The last thing I want to do is be inside. I've been inside way too much. <laughs> yeah. I don't need to, need to go to a theater. Uh, so yeah, not not my Labor Day thing. Sorry. Sorry, Alyssa. Yeah, you might not be the only one, I think. I think the, the movie theaters may have a little bit of a difficult time getting back. I mean, people want to get out. They want to do stuff and see movies. But now you've got all these distributors that are putting movies like on Disney Plus or on Amazon or whatever. You can you know, pay 30 bucks and, and rent the movie, watch it with the family, save, save some money, eat your own popcorn and, and avoid having to just be inside in a cramped space, wondering if that other person next to you or three seats down coughed, if that means something um, and what your health condition will be like two weeks down the road. All right. Yeah. I'm not going to a movie. Um, I'll, I'll wait for Bill and Ted to come out on video before I, before I catch that one. Okay. Last write lectures. This is what I normally do. Uh, I normally teach Tuesdays and Fridays, so I can take Monday off if I want to, but then I'm just one day of work behind, prep day behind. So reality check, yeah, Labor Day holiday is is not a holiday that I end up celebrating too much out of the ordinary way of day-to-day college professor living. Yeah, I'm going to give that a B. I, I usually spend a couple hours the morning of Labor Day doing doing a little bit of work, usually kind of grading the first assignment. So it's it's a good kind of catch up day without being it uh, a full day uh, of work. So, yeah, not bad. But you got you got to leave the afternoon alone. I mean, after you got about noon until eight p.m. because the kids have to wake up for school the next day. Right. You got to clear that off your schedule. So lectures are fine as long as it's in the morning. Okay. All right. No, fair enough. You got to make sure you get the grill in. You got to make sure you have a little bit of time. Take a little bit of a break. All right. Well, we wrap up every show with the crystal ball, the Tocqueville's crystal ball. This has been the whole show in a sense on the Tocqueville's crystal ball, but now we're going to play the Tocqueville uh, as badly as we do. Uh, Last week, our projections were basically looking ahead to how the polls would be affected by the Republican national convention. And Dave, you thought that Joe Biden, who was leading six States out of six top battleground States would this week be leading four of the six that his average margin would go from 3.4 points down to 1.5. I was even more aggressive in terms of the movement of the polls. I said it'd be three and three, and that Biden would have a 0.7% lead. Well, turns out things, at least in the polling data, did not turn out the way that the Trump campaign would have liked. Uh, Wisconsin, the margin went up by three points for Biden. Florida, there was movement in the direction of Trump. Uh, One poll that was steady, but another poll that said he was up by three. So kind of an even match there. No new polling numbers in Michigan. So we don't really have a sense of that one yet. Pennsylvania, though, there were several polls that showed Biden's lead growing. 
Uh, North Carolina, a slight increase in Biden's lead, and Arizona, a rather substantial one. So overall, he's leading four of the five that we have polls on, and the average lead has gone to 4.8 points. So short term, again, not what the Trump administration or campaign was hoping for. It was a shocker to me as well, because I, I remember reading a couple articles saying that there, there was dramatic movement in, um, in those battleground states. So the fact that that didn't um, bear itself out in those numbers was, a, was interesting. I, yeah, I wonder whether there's a lag there or um, you know, whether the bump that uh, we thought would come out of that convention didn't happen for the, the Trump administration. I, th- I think that, uh, that it will, but we'll, we'll see. It was uh, very surprising. Yeah, and what's interesting along with that is the fact that the betting odds did move continue to move in the direction of President Trump. So the spread, as we mentioned last time, between Biden and Trump on the betting odds was over 24 points on August 1st. It was down to 6.5 points the day after the convention closed last Friday. And now a week later, it's about 1.7. So it's continuing to move in that direction. In other words, the bettors are saying this is more or less a toss-up, right? They're saying it's 50-50 shot. Even though the polling numbers, even the polling numbers in the battleground states, which you would think they would be sensitive to, are moving in the opposite direction. So over time, those two things are going to have to come together. Either the poll numbers are going to start reflecting what these bettors are guessing, or the bettors are going to look at the polls and say, wait a second, no, Biden's, Biden's got this if these numbers continue the way they are. So we'll see. It'll be something to watch over the next couple of weeks. One quick thing I would say, though, is that I, I think the Biden campaign is shifting gears uh, and it's pivoting. Uh, so that tells me that it's probably seeing some things that require um, uh, the, his campaign to change. Uh, so uh, definitely uh, President Trump has been able to uh, gain some movement, at least if it's um, changing the way that uh, Biden campaign is going to work these next two months. He's out on the road. He's doing things that he wasn't doing before. So right. there's something uh, happening here. Yeah. Yeah. Good observation. All right. Well, we're going to focus on sports for the crystal ball this time, having had our fill of politics the last couple of weeks and these predictions. Monday night, big night um, beyond the grilling and all the rest. We have our fantasy football draft. So that's very important. Uh, And Thursday night next week, amazingly, the NFL is back. So we're drafting at about the last possible minute. Um, we're going to make our predictions, as we've done, done several times, as new sports reopen or start their new season. We predicted their first games. We'll do that again in just a second. Before we do that, we thought we probably need to check in on the predictions that we made about six weeks ago on our Return to Sports episode, which, by the way, the people have spoken. This is not their favorite topic for us to discuss. Uh, by far, our least downloaded episode was our Return to Sports episode over these last couple of months. So, we like sports. Maybe we'll persuade you to, to like sports, but that does not seem to be the natural place where our audience wants us to land. And so most of you have probably turned this off, right? You've already stopped the podcast right here. But if you're still listening, just a reminder, NHL playoffs, uh, Dave, you said the Tampa Bay Lightning would win. Still do. Still yeah, alive. Dave. Still looking good. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's not a bad choice. I said Boston Bruins. Unfortunately, they are out. The Lightning, in fact, were the team that put them out. They never seem to really get things figured out after their number one goaltender decided to sit out the playoffs. And I said the Dallas Stars would be the team that would make it from the West in kind of a surprising way. And they're actually playing right now 
And with 12 minutes and 34 seconds to go in the second period, are losing three to two in game seven to Colorado. So both my predictions may be out um, by the time this podcast is over or a few minutes after that. But Dave, you're still alive. NBA, we both picked the Clippers. And obviously the Clippers survived a bit of a scare. It looked a little bit shaky against the Mavs, but they're still alive. And the Celtics, you said, would make it from the East. Look very strong. Missed a golden chance to go up three zip last night to Toronto. Kind of a miraculous last second shot, but still looked like they're the better team. Uh, I said the Bucks would lose to the Clippers in the finals. I'm not so confident about that one. Uh, they're down two games to none to Miami and not looking great. So Clippers I'm feeling both. good about my, I mean, I, I'm on a roll here. I, yeah. I've got the yeah. lightning. I mean, I need to go to Vegas or something because I, <laughs> or just I'm hitting a lot of these or, or Jersey. That's right. Okay, right. keep going. This is great. I, been... All right. Well, so now we come to Major League Baseball. You may not be quite so happy. So you said Astros over the Nationals. Astros still alive. Uh, two games behind the A's in the West. So they'll, they'll make the playoffs. Everyone's making the playoffs. But the Nationals are 12 and 23, Oof. which is almost as bad as the Red Sox. Okay. Right. Mm. And, and yet, okay. Remember last year, they started out really bad as well. Now they had 162 games to, to make it up. But if they get on a roll, they're only five games out of the playoffs, 16-team playoffs. It's actually possible they could make the playoffs. Then who knows? You get Max Scherzer doing his thing and, and okay. off he goes. So it's, I'm not saying it's over yet, but I, I wouldn't want to be predicting the Nationals to be the National League champions at this point. Got it. Meanwhile, yeah. Meanwhile, I've got the Dodgers over the Rays. I mean, enough said. Dodgers, best record in baseball. Rays – best record in the American League. So far, so good. And the best part of it is the Yankees are pretty much mediocre. Right? 20 and 16, tied with the Toronto Blue Jays. So, I mean, the, the Red Sox are horrific, but the Yankees aren't great. So it feels like, I don't know, Dodgers, Rays, yeah, I'll, I'll take that. And I think going into the playoffs, at least those will be your two favorites. Things could get wild and crazy as the playoffs unfold, but I'm happy with where I am at this point. I think it's great. I mean, the one thing you haven't mentioned that yet, Matt, that is very, very important. We had a fantasy draft for baseball. Did and we? there are eight teams. Oh, yeah. That happened about six weeks ago also. There are eight I teams don't remember in that, that league. A team called the Suffering Sluggers. Um, it, maybe it should be called the Suffering Sluggers <laughs> uh, because they're in eighth place, Matt, in that team and there's a team at the top called the canyon lake texans who almost have an insurmountable leap i don't want to just uh, anything could happen these last three weeks but number one team canyon lake texans number eight team the suffering sluggers i mean that yeah i think i've got an insurmountable lead too um i can't even catch seventh place (laughs) i don't think yeah i i remember saying something like i think we have maybe two of the three best teams in the league and I was right on one of those, but my team, well, the injuries, Giancarlo Stanton got hurt and Charlie Morton got hurt and Steven Strasburg got hurt. And I, I could keep listing names, but it's been, it's been ugly. Yeah, there's no question about it. My, my one-year return to fantasy baseball on a 60-game schedule, no keepers, no pressure, been an utter disaster. Uh, my son, who helped me draft, gave up about four games in. We, we think we were in first place the first day. 
got a screenshot of that to prove it. And then we were in last by about three days in and he's just, he just gave it up. This is complete disaster. And you know, I can't really disagree with him. All right. So NFL, NFL is happening. You said Patriots over saints. And I said, Baltimore over Cowboys, obviously no games yet to be played. So we don't, we don't know if those predictions are better or worse than they were when we made them. Although you've got a new quarterback for the Patriots, Cam Newton, new captain as well. So I would say that's cause for optimism. Yeah, I, 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 I still believe in Bill, so we'll see. We'll see. Yep. Okay, all right. Well, so the game, the game Thursday night, usually it's the Super Bowl champion. It is again this year. And some important conference or divisional opponents. So we've got Houston Texans at Kansas City Chiefs. Kansas City Chiefs usually have a massive home field advantage. They're one of the best in terms of home field advantage. Who knows what that means, right? Because it's not going to be the crowd, obviously. I guess they're talking about pumping in crowd noise, so we'll see how that affects things. Will there be a little bit of a Super Bowl hangover? Can they keep it going a second year coming off the championship? Can Houston overcome general manager Bill O'Brien's tendency to trade away his best players and bring in spare parts? Uh, it's a great coach, but as a general manager, not so good. What do you think, Dave? I think that uh, I think the Texans surprise here. I, I, it's a nine and a half point spread, so I think that the Chiefs will win it. But I think uh, by a field goal at the end, I think it'll be a closer game than than uh, that spread. You want to give me a score? I'm gonna say thirty twenty seven Chiefs. Okay, thirty thirty twenty seven. All right, yeah, that's that sounds like a a Chiefs game. I think it's going to be a little lower scoring. I, you know, no one's no games yet. There's obviously been some scrimmaging and practicing that's kind of been game conditions, but I have a feeling there's going to be a bit of rust the first few weeks of the season. And so I'm expecting that means probably lower scoring games. Usually defenses can shake off the rust more quickly than the offenses. So I want to say a little lower scoring. I think Chiefs will win at 24-17. Now, it might be a little bit ugly. I'm, I'm going to guess there's going to be some turnovers Probably no one's going to come out of this game thinking, wow, that was you know, top-level football. But it'll still be football, and it'll be real football, and obviously a full slate of games to follow next weekend. That's going to do it for today's show. We thank you for listening as always. Please remember to subscribe and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Thanks again. We look forward to talking to you next week.